the ideas, the leaders, the lives that are shaping Denmark and the world. From Blocks Hub in Copenhagen, Denmark, this is Global Denmark. Welcome back to the Global Denmark podcast, where we explore how thought leaders and innovators are working to create a better Denmark and a better world. Well, I recently had the pleasure of sitting down with Kuhn Pokers. Kuhn is the former executive vice president at Siemens, the former managing director at B&W Vulon, and the newly appointed CEO of Staden. He's also a global partner for Blocks Hub. In this wide-ranging conversation, we discuss what it means to be an international leader in Denmark, cultural differences between working in the United States, the Netherlands, Denmark, to name a few. What are some tips and tricks for leaders that are going to be coming to Denmark and much, much more. I really enjoyed this one and I hope you guys do too. So without further ado, let's take a listen to what Kuhn Bogers has to say about international leadership in Denmark. All right, we are back, and I am here in the studio at Blocks Hub with Kuhn Bogers. Kuhn, thank you so much for taking the time to come by today. Thank you for having me, Thomas. Now, for our audience, we know each other outside of this studio. Actually, uh, Kuhn was one of my prized pupils in our cultural training class in your former capacity. I hope I uh, didn't create any cultural biases, but we went the other way. Yes, you did, for sure. <laughs> But um, now I'm happy to catch up here. Now, Kuhn, I want to start out today. You were the former managing director of B&W Vulon, where we first met. I think it's interesting being in a top position here in Denmark as a foreigner. And I know for our audience, we have a lot of listeners that are leaders, maybe not CEO or managing directors, but upper middle management. What are some observations you had in your time as managing director in terms of navigating in Denmark in that capacity? Yeah, good question, Thomas. There's quite some similarities between like the Danish culture and the Dutch culture. I come from the Netherlands. And let me say first, I'm speaking here on my personal account and uh, not for the company. But yeah, there's quite some similarities. So we have a open door culture, quite a flat organization. We're used to picking up ideas and information from all over the organization. And I think that's that helped me uh, adapt to uh, to the Danish working culture. On the other hand, like uh, Vodunt is uh, quite an international company, like we do waste-to-energy and biomass uh, power plant projects all over the world and are owned by an American uh, mother, Babcock and Wilcox. So it was quite challenging to bridge that divide, say. But interesting. I mean, culture-wise, yeah, I think in Denmark there's a broad focus on like all stakeholders so not only the shareholder but also the employees customers society as a whole and in the rest of the world that's also the case but you know in in different countries there's different focuses and of course in the u.s the focus is on the shareholder so that sometimes uh, required some navigating what Um, impact does that have in terms of your leadership style when you have to take a broader stakeholder approach maybe than they do in other markets i mean i want to take that stakeholder approach because that's also my how I was brought up and what what I believe in. On the other hand, you have to have respect for the culture of your owners in this case. So it's also a matter of explaining and translating or showing what the impact is of the different stakeholder management for the finer shareholder impact and interests. So in the end, the whole stakeholder management in the broader sense is also good for the shareholder, but you need to 
you know, explain those uh, those connections. And of course, then there's always can always be different opinions as uh, what to do first. It is also accepted that in the end, the people and the organization are very important to create the value that mm. you can with your technology and your business. Mm. So there is a, a sense and an understanding also on the American side that we need to adapt to the local culture. Uh, having said that, I mean, there was a strong push to internationalize the operation also because our you know customers are more and more international. What does that entail when you say internationalize an operation? I mean, well, that means that, that mean? also the, the Danish organization was supposed to and needed to become more international-oriented, more open-minded to other cultures as well. And of course, like they were, but you can always do better. One of the examples is that we, uh, we Webcock and Wilcox Veulund, uh, is doing a lot of projects in the UK. So the UK is, doesn't have the same culture as, um, as Denmark, although it is in Europe. And then we doing projects in Asia. There is quite a need to, to think more internationally, to think more uh, open-minded culturally. Of course, here in Denmark, we expect people to adapt to our culture, but just as much we need to adapt to other people's cultures, whether they're our owners or our customers or our partners. Mm. So in that sense, yeah, if you do international business, I think it's important to realize that it has to go both ways. Mm. Uh, you cannot only expect parties to adapt to your own culture. Say. It's an interesting matrix that you are in being from the Netherlands as a managing director in Denmark with the headquarters in the United States. I think that's an interesting matrix to find yourself in. And I know in terms of work culture, one of the main differences there probably was this concept of power distance, where in Denmark and the Netherlands, the power distance is much lower than it is in the States. In the United States, they both accept and expect there to be a distance in power in terms of authority. How are you supposed to take a high power distance cultural mandate from headquarters and translate that into a lower power distance culture? Because I think that's, from a cultural standpoint, one of the major challenges is how you take a, a directive that needs to be implemented but sell it in a way that's digestible for that type of culture. Yeah, that's a good question. And um, I think those type of situations you have in different companies, of course, in this example, but also I used to work for Siemens before. You also have right. that example like... Uh, with a German management culture compared to cultures where I worked in, because I usually worked not in Germany, but in other countries doing Siemens business. So it's a good question how to translate it. It's a matter of how you communicate it much more than, than what, because in the end, mm. like people appreciate to be involved if the power distance is, um, is less, but they also appreciate the clarity and direction. So it's more... Uh, I think it's much more how early you involve them and how much you interact on these topics. And of course, people want to have some influence and being taken seriously and have their ideas taken into account. But in the end, they also hear, and in the Middle East, for example, or in, in the Netherlands, they do appreciate or do expect that you as managers take the decision and... Yeah, also want you to do so. I think it takes some time. Like it's a, it's a time issue and it's a tone issue, but it's not that it's com two complete opposites. Eh? Now, if there's a leader who's about to start here in Denmark and they're from maybe another European country or just somewhere in the world, 
what advice would you give to them in terms of the position they're about to start now that you've gone through it? Well, I would advise them for sure to start with Danish. That's uh, one of the regrets I have, I guess, that I didn't. The idea was that when I came, there was a lot of things to do and it was uh, very hectic. So I thought I'll pick it up later. But in the end, you never do, or at least I didn't do. And, you know, I know some basic Danish now, but it's not enough to hold a good conversation and to follow everything. So I think that would really be helpful, despite the fact that, you know, the Danes speak very well English. What is it about learning the language that could be beneficial? It's easier to to pick up things like on the in the cafeteria, like in informal conversations. Do you think it's similar in the Netherlands that if... Uh a leader came there that you would advise them to learn Dutch? Or is there, you think, even more of an importance here with the language than there is, for example, in the Netherlands, if the organizational language is English? Yeah, it depends a little bit on how international the organization is and how much it has a international culture and English as the main language. I'm sure here in Denmark there's also high-tech software companies that are fully in English and everybody is communicating and talking and even thinking in English, even the Danes. But if that's not the case, like what was the case in my company when it's still mostly Danes and they're mostly speaking Danish amongst themselves, then you would really need to know that. And that's the same in the Netherlands, I think. Like if um, if it's almost like a very Dutch company doing international business, then you know they speak English and use English to do business, but still the culture, core culture is Dutch. And then you should really learn Dutch. I think... The other way also goes like for the Danish companies and the Dutch companies, you know, if you are really doing more and more business abroad, you should transform your culture into a more international culture and you should for sure do at least everything dual language, if not at some point move over to fully English mm. uh, interaction, even the informal part, say. so. Besides perhaps taking more intensive Danish lessons. Do you have any other advice for leaders that are coming to Denmark from abroad? Could be both work-related or just in general, some observations about being part of this culture? Maybe get a bike? <laughs> yeah, get a bike, yeah. I didn't think of that because in Holland we also bike uh, all the time. So, But yes, a bike is good. Um, for the rest, yeah, I think I mean, take a cultural training with, uh, with you guys, that helps. Some practical information that you get from there as well. Yeah, you have to be aware of the fact that it's a flat organization mm -hmm. culture. People want to be heard and want to be involved in devising the strategy and understanding what you're working on mm -hmm. as management. And so communication and interaction on these topics are important. On the other hand, yeah, it's also important to understand that the Danes think they're very direct. Mm -hmm. I, can, I can hear in that that you disagree, potentially. Yes, yes, to some extent. So they are direct in the sense that they're not afraid to to walk into your door and, and have a conversation and uh, tell what uh, what's going on. On the other hand, they're also, to some extent, polite or respectful and in a way that they try to avoid confrontation, I mm. think. They're direct. To a point. To a point, yeah. If they if they feel that it's going to be confrontational, then it seems to me that, that they are sort of circumventing and start communicating more indirectly. That's interesting. Yeah, it's and it's I mean, it's not good or bad, it's just the way it is. Like in Holland, like we, we are a bit more direct also when it's confrontational. 
on the one hand that's good because it's more clear on the other hand it's not good because it can be interpreted as impolite and rude even which we hear a lot in the netherlands so yeah you just have to accept you know how your culture is but be aware of it and uh, deal with that so there it's uh, that's a really interesting point it's about understanding where that line ends where directness becomes seen as potential confrontation and as a leader being able to have that open conversation and hopefully enhance the tolerance and maybe get to that more dutch level is that what you're advocating for no i think we we need to to be aware of the differences in, in culture i think that's more important than changing because you can never be everything at the same time so as an international manager it's it's good to be aware of that don't try to change all the danes that's not going to work just like you won't be able to change all the dutch but uh, if you're aware of it then you know that you know if you if you feel there's a certain tension that could be coming from a potential confrontation then you know you have to ask further and dig deeper because at that point the direct feedback might have stopped and uh, moved into more indirect feedback I, i think that's such a a wonderful point and it also when i'm reflecting upon my time as a leader i've had similar intuitions and i've thought okay but you're putting words on that feeling i've had of where you have directness to a point but then there is this kind of avoidance of confrontation at a certain point and it's such a crucial thing as a leader to grasp yeah i think like you're saying uh, that's a great point in a way in your professional career you have stood kind of as an ambassador when one's a managing director in a way and i could see now that you are a blocks hub ambassador <laughs> or a blocks hub partner i think is the official term uh between denmark and the netherlands could you say a word about what that entails your new uh, your new gig there yeah so it's um voluntary work as a global partner for blocks hub when i got a little bit more time I was thinking what to do next apart from looking for a new job of course and I got involved in Blocksop as well as TechLeap in the Netherlands Blocksop here in Copenhagen to work with urban innovation centers which Blocksop is or tech scale-ups uh, in the Netherlands which TechLeap is uh, facilitating and yeah, I just like that I've always loved tech and science What about that is exciting for you in general i'm interested in anything tech and science so that's already fun and i've always worked with people in tech and science like tech and science in and of itself doesn't do anything you need to know how to understand it explain it and apply it so those three things come together a lot in my life and yeah to work with scale-ups is exciting because you get to interact with a lot of different companies a lot of different people that are very motivated and passionate about what they do and here with urban innovation it's also for like a common good of society you know creating smart cities creating more sustainable cities that's very exciting and interesting what do you think within this space the two countries that you're kind of bridging can learn from each other in terms of what they do well the first thing that i would think of that we can both learn from from the rest of the world or at least uh, the United States but I also saw it in the in the UAE is that right you're an executive vice president for yeah, Siemens, Siemens in the um, in the United Arab Emirates so in du- I was based in Dubai uh, responsible for building technologies part of smart cities in the Middle East and what I noticed there and what I think I noticed in the States although I haven't lived there is that it helps to create an international environment where that attracts entrepreneurs so the dutch and the the danes 
focus a lot on creating the right environments for their own citizens to be entrepreneurial, which of course is important. But in those countries, you see that it also attracts international entrepreneurs because they create a, a good environment to live and to start a business. I mean, the English language is important. For example, in the UAE, everything is, is dual language. In the States, of course, everything is English, so it just makes it easier. But it could also be tax-wise uh, issues. For example, in the States, you know, it's, it's very easy to give your employees stock options or stocks um, uh, without any big tax issues. But in the Netherlands, for example, I'm not sure how it is in Denmark, like any of those awards can be tax-wise less advantageous. And like TechLeap is, for example, also advocating to improve that. But all those aspects, whether it's the dual language uh, or the focus on, on that language, the, the tax parts, I think that makes a big difference that you create a space where you attract entrepreneurs and attract people that believe in the added value of tech uh, mm -hmm. to solve world, the world's problems. Because otherwise you only fish in your small pond of 17, 18 million people in the Netherlands or five and a half million people in, in Denmark. Mm. And it's not 100% the case because, I mean, in Denmark you also have international entrepreneurs here in Copenhagen as well as in the Netherlands. But they usually came then via the university mm. uh, and stuck around. Mm -hmm. So I think it, it would help in scaling these efforts basically to attract also international entrepreneurs. Mm. It seems like I do a lot of work in the educational sector here, that Netherlands in some areas is more international than Denmark, especially in the educational sector, I can tell you. Why do you think that is, and what do you think Denmark could do better there in terms of working with internationalization? All good questions. That's why they pay me the big bucks. Yeah, exactly. Well, then... I think it's also clear to the listeners that this wasn't uh, prepared <laughs> in advance and it's not scripted. Yes, I think the Netherlands is a little bit more international than than Denmark. And you sure you're not biased? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, I love to say, I think I s we said that before, before we started the podcast too, that I think there's always more overlap than there's differences. Mm -hmm. And we, we tend as people to focus on the differences. So let me first say, I think there's... A lot more overlap between the Netherlands and Denmark, uh, also internationalization-wise, than, than differences. I mean, we're both small countries that have a much bigger uh, economy than our country could sustain. So we are a lot focused on international business and export. And I think we're both doing a great job there. Having said that, from, from my perspective, I would say at least the business scene in the Netherlands is a little bit more inclusive then in, in Denmark, I find many more international employees in the companies there than I find here. Of course, I only have like a, a small subset of companies that I've interacted with. So right. uh, that's the disclaimer. It's not representative, but that's my, my impression. And maybe that's, you know, because in Denmark, we find it very important to, to defend our culture and proud of our culture. And want to make sure that, you know, the Danish culture is maintained, of course, but also emphasized. And the Dutch have the same, you know, they are also afraid that, you know, if they would f move completely to English, for example, that there's a lot of worry that you know, typical Dutch things will go away and we will lose that. And, and personally, I think that 
we can do a lot better with more both and thinking instead of either or thinking. Yes, things will change if you go dual language all the way, but maybe also for the better to some extent. And why wouldn't it be possible to be anti-international and be proud of your own culture and maintain that? Too often we put choices against each other, like it's either or. And I'm a great believer and proponent for both and thinking. So let's do both, you know, let's do both. Here, here. Well put. You have just been appointed as the new CEO of Staten. Congratulations, first of all. Thank you. Could you say a couple words about this exciting new opportunity? Yes, absolutely. I'm very excited to, to start at Staten uh, later this year. It's a um, regional grid company, grid operator, electricity grid and natural gas grid. What I'm really excited about is that uh, this company is like in the middle of the energy transition. So the grid companies connect, of course, the production of energy with the consumption. Staden is providing and operating and maintaining the grid services uh, in a large part of the Netherlands. So Rotterdam, The Hague, Utrecht and Zeeland. In Holland, we also have a Zeeland. And yeah, it's very exciting. I mean, in the past, it was mostly connecting electricity from power plants to homes and industry one direction. Now it's all becoming bi-directional, multi-directional. Consumers become prosumers with their solar panels. There's huge amounts of uh, renewable energy coming on the grid. We're a little bit behind in the Netherlands compared to Denmark. Denmark is really a front runner there. But yeah, we will have to deal with that as well in, in the Netherlands. So grid stability, automation, and making sure that we provide 99.999% availability of energy while going through a huge transition of fossil fuel controllable power to sustainable power that is much less controllable. So It's an exciting uh, frontier to be a part of. I look forward to following the, your progress and state in as well. Kuhn, I think this is a great time to take a quick break, hear a word from our sponsors, and then we will come back with our quick fire round. Studying for an executive MBA at Henley Business School in Denmark is an intense and rewarding experience. If you want to achieve the best possible outcomes in business and in life, Henley can give you the skills and knowledge you need through the Henley MBA. For more information, visit henley.dk. All right, we are back here with our special guest, Kuhn Bogers. Kuhn, are you ready for the quickfire round? Yes, sir. What are some habits, routines, or rituals you do every day to stay mentally or physically sharp? Well, one of them is intermittent fasting. I started, I guess, a year, maybe a year and a half ago. I only eat from 12 noon until 8 p.m. And that really yeah, helped me. It came from the fact that I was reading. I mean, I like science a lot. I read a lot of science, not only in my own field of energy and, and automation, and one of the things that keeps coming back health-wise is that calorie restriction is important. We just take in too many calories as humans nowadays. And this is a way that fits very well for me. Mm. Yeah, I guess for the average adult male, it's 2,500, 2,400. But th- this this for you keeps your, your blood sugar at a, a level you like or just keeps you in a state that's throughout the day that you feel is more optimal? Yeah, it's... Reduced my weight a bit, and it makes it easy to stay at a at a better weight for me. So then you move more freely, you feel less sluggish, and yeah, I also don't feel like I have to eat all the time. So I really think that what we were taught, you know, when we were young, that three meals a day are important, and breakfast is the most important meal of the day. 
I've uh, come away from that. So, Have you ever undergone a special experience that has had a major impact on who you are as a leader or person? Yes, I had a motorbike accident when I was 23. I had a motorbike a couple of years and I just started work and was driving to work on my motorbike in the Netherlands, like from Delft to Rotterdam. And I was driving in Rotterdam center and it was like a broad road, like two, like four lanes, two lanes on each side. And I was just pulling up, um, not speeding, but, you know, coming from a traffic light and... Uh, and I saw a, a cab coming from the right-hand side. And I just didn't think of it. Like, I thought this... I really thought I was on the road that had the right-of-way. But apparently I didn't. And um, the cab probably thought he would teach me a lesson or thought I would stop. I don't know. So he kept on going and I like crashed like into his side. And um, I flew over the car and got up on the other side. And amazingly enough, I didn't have anything except like uh, some rip in my pants. Wow. Um, on the one hand, it was like very confronting because like uh, your life sort of passes in front of you or at least that's how it feels like uh, you become very aware of your mortality, which yeah. actually is good sometimes, not in this way, but uh, it's good to, to think about that sometimes. Mm. But I attribute the fact that I didn't get killed on the one hand luck, of course, but on the other hand also... Um, my experience with Aikido, which is a Japanese martial art, more defense martial art, so you, you don't really have uh, matches in it, so maybe a lot of people don't know it. But yeah, Aikido helped me a lot, and in this case, what was important is that you learn how to fall. Like you roll a lot, you uh, break fall a lot, and I'm pretty sure that that's how I survived, because I flew over the car and I made a roll, and I got up again, so... That must have been it. And of course, I did it already for eight years and I had a black belt. So you really wow. know how to do it instinctively as well. It might have saved your life. I think so, yeah. I think so. And I might have been lucky otherwise also. But, sure. you know, you, maybe not. And I, I'm sure that uh, learning how to fall at a martial art, whether it's Aikido or another one, is really something that, that helps. Um, and Aikido also helped me with other stuff, you know. It was the... The first time that I that I taught you know, after a while, then you get more experience and you teach also classes. The first time that I had a board function in the Aikido Foundation, that I was training. First time that I meditated, a lot of focus on breathing, mm -hmm. uh, breathing properly, the right posture. So it also helped me with my confidence. Um, so yeah. So I'm would you uh, say that that's something you recommend for business leaders to stay in a good state of mind in general? Yeah, I think. For sure. I th I, of course, it depends a little bit on your teacher, but I think uh, martial arts have been around for a long time and that's not for nothing. Uh, mm -hmm. It has a lot of different aspects that help you personally and character-wise. Meditation, I mean, uh, everybody's talking about it nowadays and more and more people are doing it, but it's a natural part of, of a lot of martial arts. So yeah, I could for sure recommend that. Yeah. What is your biggest motivator? My biggest motivator is, um, apart from... You know, my wife and kids, uh, personally, it's a tech, science, and people, like I mentioned in the first part. So tech and science by people and for people. I think it has just so much potential to improve society. It's so interesting to, to work with that, that, yeah, I just like to understand it all, which is not possible, but, you know, 
uh, it gives a lot of motivation to to work with it day in day out so now one thing you didn't mention there was being the boss and obviously you've you're now the CEO you've been a managing director and risen to the ranks do you think that if you're passionate about what you do you can naturally rise or what's your advice to people that want to be a leader yeah i mean i don't have to be the boss that's correct i ended up being the boss of course that also has to do partially with your ambition and your interests but yeah i believe in serving leadership so i think leading is important from a direction setting point of view but also from uh, just as equally important from a creating the right conditions point of view um, and then letting the collaboration and the team within the collaboration uh, do its thing and uh, create the value you never do anything by yourself and uh, everything is is teamwork whether it's innovation or building projects tech projects what i'm used to or operating a complex tech system and of course in our complex world it's even more like that so i like to facilitate collaboration create the right boundary conditions for a technical organization to provide the right added value for society so what's the best piece of business or life advice you've ever received yeah there's a few things there's a lot of wisdom out there that uh, we should follow basically but a few things like two things i, I would mention like one is that um, uh, the happiest people uh, don't have the best of everything but they just make the best of everything it's not always easy to follow that advice but <laughs> you have to remind yourself at least i have to remind myself regularly cultivating gratitude and that state of mind yeah exactly yeah it's important to remind yourself what you can be grateful for and uh, are grateful for but also to yeah to really not always strive for more but make the best of what you have and then the other thing is that no amount of regret can solve the past and no amount of anxiety can change the future so that really resonates with me because it pushes you to stay in the moment and to focus on the moment it reminds you that it's good to think about the past in the sense of learnings but in the sense of regret it has like negative uh, connotations and an impact and the same is for the future it's, it doesn't mean it's not good to plan but you know to over plan or be over anxious about things that you don't know that's going to happen um uh, is also not right so i know in my own life when i get bogged down it's that anxiety or the regret <laughs> yeah that kind of uh, starts spinning its own narrative and get away from the present so yeah i can empathize what book or books would you like to recommend to our audience one book is called chance by a fellow called amir adjel a c z e l and it's a book about statistics basically but very accessibly written mm-hmm. and i love it because i i find it so fascinating that it's so counterintuitive statistics compared to our linear thinking and, and straightforward thinking do you have an example from the book that you remember that's yeah like one example that that he writes about is um you know if you have a group of people in one room how many people would you need to have two people with the same birthday there's of course 365 possibilities right of right. birthdays so you would think like oh that's a big amount you know 100 200 people maybe at least that is my intuition yeah uh, not sure what you think uh yeah i would think around 150 200 yeah and so actually it's the case that you only need 23 people in a room to have a 50% chance of having two people with the same birthday and even more amazing to me is that 
you only need 31 people in one room. So it's only eight more to have a 95% chance of two people having the same birthday. And I see you nodding yeah. like, that cannot be right. <laughs> and I know you're going to look it up later. <laughs> I hope. Ch- chance maybe. is the name of the book. <laughs> chance is the name of the book. Yeah, and I'm it's very counterintuitive. Yeah. I also, I mean, I wouldn't believe it if I wouldn't have triple checked it. But with 31 people in one room, there's a 95% chance <laughs> that two people will have the same birthday. I'm just going to bring that book down to the pub and uh, blow people's minds. <laughs> I'll just write down a few of them and I got enough material. <laughs> and then a more practical practical application, if we have time, is um, job hunting. Like I was job hunting the last uh, nine months and other people will, will be too. And this is the, the law of the big numbers, basically. Like what's your chance of getting a job if you get into certain mm-hmm. processes and you get invited and you're in the last three? So I can advise you, I mean of course, create multiple options. But how many options do you need? And if you have multiple options, what is your chance that you actually get the job? So the simple example is if you have three options, if you're engaged in three uh, application processes, and suppose in all three you're in the shortlist. And suppose that shortlist is each three people. Normally when you're on the shortlist, you have to assume that anybody on that shortlist can do the job. So... It's a matter of click and chance and details whether you'll be chosen or not. So in that sense, you can say that everybody has like a one-third chance to get that job. So you also have a 33% chance to get that job. You are in a position that you have three processes and each of those processes... You have a one in three. You have a one in three, you have a 33% chance. So what is your total chance of getting a job when when all those three processes have been decided? My guess, it would just be 50%. Yeah, it's an interesting guess. Um, my intuition would either say a third plus a third plus a third is one. So you would think, like, couldn't you like add these chances, <laughs> right? Because you do that a, a lot of cases. Like, you you understand that if you have like thirty three percent chance each time, you must have more chance in in total. Mm-hmm. You think, but of course, like to have a chance of one hundred percent doesn't make sense because there's no guarantee that no, you'll get a job. So it must be less than one hundred percent. On the other hand, another intuition that that a lot of people have is that it's just one-third, right? Because they are independent situations. The people don't know each other. Uh, There's no reason why you would get one job because you don't get the other. So a lot of people, and that was was also my guess, would say 33% because you have 33% Mm. chance on each of the jobs. And that doesn't change whether you miss the first job or the next job. But actually, the chance is 70%. 70. 70% that you have a job after all these three have been decided. Yeah, it, it makes sense when you think about just sports and underdogs, right? If they run the same match three times and they, uh, they're they the underdog with a 33%, my gut tells me that they can take it one out of three. Yeah, but it just shows that, and this is just three chances, it just shows that if you, you know, go to stretch and create enough chances that eventually your total chance will get closer to one, right? And uh, So don't give up, diversify exactly. the portfolio. Exactly. Kuna, mindful of the time, and I want to wrap up the podcast today with one final question. And we maybe hinted about it in the first half. What can Denmark teach the world? And what do you think Denmark can still learn from the rest of the world? Well, what Denmark can teach the world, I think, is uh, green tech adaptation. Like, I think uh, Denmark is, is really, has been ahead of the curve in uh, decarbonization and stimulating tech for that from 
the early adaption from government, support from government. It helps in uh, creating a more sustainable energy supply in Denmark, but also helps creating a business environment for, for companies, uh, whether you know it's Vestas or you know Siemens Gamesa is big in Denmark because it uh, originated from a company called Bonus. Companies like Copenhagen Infrastructure Partners are, are big, are still, and it's all related to stimulating this and this green technology. And I feel that like, there's a new push coming with green hydrogen, and I already see companies popping up, doing their first projects in Denmark, but spreading out internationally quickly as well. So that's, I think, something where the world can learn from Denmark that, uh, you know, it's good to stimulate and invest as a network and society in these type of technologies. What Denmark can learn from the world, business-wise, international companies, as I mentioned before, should go more dual language, um, have everything in English and Danish. Like I said, a lot of companies have that for sure, but there's a lot of international operating companies in Denmark that don't have that. So that's important. And on a personal note, it's maybe a bit sensitive, but you know, I think the kids start drinking too early. I know alcohol is important in the culture. It's the same in the Netherlands. Mm. And I also like my beer. Uh, I like my Tubor Classic. A, a Danish beer? Danish beer, yes, yes. But, you know, I think kids really start mm. too early here. And I think uh, we should protect them from alcohol at a too early age. There was just a movie made by Thomas Winterberg called Druck. It's getting a lot of attention. Uh, and it's kind of examines the the relationship to alcohol also in the Danish society. Mm. I think you should take a look at that too. Oh, I will do that. Thank you very much. Well, Kuhn, on that note, we don't have a beer to toast, but uh, <laughs> it's been a, a true pleasure. Thank you so much for coming by the studio. You're always welcome back in Copenhagen, even though you're going back to the Netherlands. Thanks, Thomas. Thanks for having me. Appreciate it. And to our audience, don't forget to hop over to wherever you download your podcasts, iTunes, Spotify, Stitcher, Google Play. Rate, review, really makes a difference. And if you like what you heard today, come back again. And until next time, see you on the GDP. Are you getting the most out of your time in Denmark? Pick up the printed copy of the English language newspaper Copenhagen Post today to access relevant news and event information guaranteed to enhance your working and family